0: This podcast was supported by Grant 2016-MUMU-K001, awarded by the Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention. The opinions, findings, conclusions, and recommendations expressed in this podcast are those of the host and guests and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Department of Justice. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Reflections on Research podcast. I'm your host, Mike Gerringer, Director of Research and Evaluation at Mentor, the National Mentoring Partnership. Uh, Just a reminder that this episode is brought to you as part of our work on the National Mentoring Resource Center, or NMRC and we are the nation's leading source of training and technical assistance for youth mentoring programs. Uh, The center is sponsored through a cooperative agreement with the Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention, or OJJDP, uh, who has a long history of investing in youth mentoring research and programming, including one of the great studies we will be talking about today on this episode. So we certainly thank OJJDP for their generous support of both cutting-edge research and projects like the NMRC that allow that research to perhaps reach a wider audience. Uh, If this is your first time listening to an episode of Reflections on Research, just note that you can always find new episodes in this series on the NMRC website at nationalmentoringresourcecenter.org. You can always get the scoop on this and, and other work that the center is doing, new publications and so forth. Uh, by subscribing to our monthly e-newsletter. And it's easy to do that right there on the homepage of the website. I'm really excited to dive in today's topics, which all center around a series of studies conducted on the Young Women Leaders Program. And you know, while we will be talking about this one program, I think it'll allow us to talk about many different aspects of mentoring and to really look at some different subjects and and challenge our thinking in some ways about how mentoring programs work, especially group mentoring, and the impact that those programs have on young people. I want to start off today by introducing the wonderful researcher behind all of this work, and that is uh, Dr. Nancy Deutsch, uh, who is a professor of research, statistics and evaluation, and applied developmental science at the University of Virginia. She is also the director of YouthNEX, which is the UVA Center to Promote Effective Youth Development at their Curry School of Education. Her research examines the socio-ecological context of adolescent development, uh, particularly issues related to identity. And she's focused a lot on in her work on the role of after-school programs and relationships with important adults, And is especially interested in the process of adolescent learning and development as that unfolds uh, within local environments for better understanding of how to create the settings that better support youth, especially youth that due to economic or social cultural factors uh, may be more at risk than others. So she also serves in uh, what little spare time she has left after doing all that other stuff as a member of our NMRC research board. And she's really been instrumental in that project's efforts to uh, do some teaching for mentoring programs about kind of relevant and doable evaluation approaches. So I've worked with Nancy on, on many things over the years and really thrilled to be talking to you today. So welcome, Nancy. Thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks, Mike. I'm really excited to be talking to you. And I also want to note quickly that like, um, Any good project, although I may be the academic speaking to you today about this research, um, it is, there are actually many of us behind this work, and I have a a whole team of fabulous colleagues who've contributed to the research that we're going to talk about today.
0: Great. And in fact, Nancy, when we post this online, we can even name some of those people so that they uh, get the credit they deserve for what is obviously a team effort on any big research project, uh, like the ones we'll be talking about today. So I figure we might as well start uh, by sharing a little bit about the Young Women Leaders Program itself. It's been around for for some time, and you've obviously done a lot of work kind of examining how it works and whether it works. So I'm hoping you could tell our audience some of the basics about the program, the setting, the model, uh, who they serve, and, and so forth, and what kind of drew you to this program as a researcher.
1: Sure. So YWLP is a combined group and one-on-one mentoring program, and it serves adolescent girls. Um, It originally served seventh grade girls, although it has expanded to serve eighth grade and even high school girls in some places. Um, It's also a service learning program for college women who serve as the mentors in the program. My colleague, Edith Lawrence, who's known as Winks, she's a clinical psychologist here at UVA, um, actually just retired this spring. She founded the program just over 20 years ago in response to concerns that she and local schools had about girls losing voice and self-esteem as they entered middle school. Um, I think that there are four aspects of YWLP that really make it unique, and also that makes it really an interesting program for me to study in terms of thinking about best practices for mentoring. Um, So first, The girls are matched with a mentor, but then those pairs meet with seven other pairs and a group facilitator once a week at the girls' schools during the after-school hours. Um, They also spend a minimum of four hours together outside of the group in their one-on-one dyads. Um, So the the mentees and mentors really interact in two different contexts that provide for different opportunities for developing their relationship and different types of conversation and activities. So it really is a hybrid of a group mentoring program and a one-on-one program that makes it sort of different from others. Second, um, the group portion of the program is structured and it follows a curriculum that addresses issues faced by adolescent girls. So things like peer relations, self-esteem, body image and others. Um, Third, and that I would say that also that makes it somewhat unique from more traditional mentoring programs where only the relationship might be might be the focus. Um, Third, the College Women Mentors take a semester-long course that combines information on adolescent girls' development and best practices in mentoring, so it provides ongoing and very intensive training and support for the mentors. The mentors also meet weekly with um, the other mentors in their group and their group facilitator, who's either a graduate student or an undergraduate who previously served as a YWLP mentor, um, to plan their group for that week. And this happens as part of the class the first semester and as a one credit class the second semester. Um, the fourth thing that I think really makes it unique and is attractive from a research point of view as well um, is that from the beginning, Winks incorporated research into program activities. So that she's the idea of surveying mentees and mentors pre and post program, for example, um, was, was done all along. And, and she was doing this from the beginning to track program effectiveness as well as to inform program changes. So the program team actually refines the curriculum each summer and the research team periodically presents information to both the program team and the mentors to help guide their work. Um, I personally got involved with the program 14 years ago when I came to UVA, um, and someone who knew that I studied out-of-school programs and that I had a particular interest in girls development um, introduced me to Winks as the director of this program, um, and and so that was sort of the the start. Winks immediately said, aha, so and drew me right into the research team and actually was um, tremendously supportive, and, and I sort of became the the leader eventually of of the research team that has grown and includes a number of different faculty members, or it has over time included different faculty members, postdoctoral researchers, graduate students, and undergraduates. Um, And as I mentioned, Wink's actually retired this spring, so it's a big transition for the program right now. And this year, uh, Mike Lyons, who's another researcher who studies mentoring in our clinical and school psychology program here, he and I are actually working with the program team to implement a study of the implementation of the curriculum, which is something that the program has indicated it would like to understand better. It isn't something we've really studied yet.
0: Thanks, Nancy. Um, it sounds like a wonderful and, and very well thought out program. And I can see, you know, why you were drawn to it just with so many kind of embedded research opportunities within kind of the design and structure of the the program. And I'm personally fascinated by these programs that combine one-to-one mentoring and group activities. I just feel like there's that's such a fertile ground for you know not only getting one-on-one support, but giving, in this case, girls a chance to perhaps practice some of the skills they're learning with their mentor and, and really build stronger supportive bonds with each other. Um, so there's just a, a lot going on there, but I think that makes it really complicated in terms of what's happening At the individual and group level, there's a lot of moving parts there, including, you know, this facilitator role that is neither mentor or um, uh, mentee, although I think in some instances, facilitators were also mentors, I think I remember reading. So the mechanism for change here is super complex. And I know that one of your earliest studies of the program focused on kind of the social processes within the groups. And so I was hoping you could talk a little bit about what are some of the key processes that you looked at and, and how did these groups of girls differ based on how those processes were playing out?
1: Absolutely. So, you know, I I agree with you. And and one of the things that makes YWLP so interesting to me as a researcher is also what makes it difficult to study, right? Because you can't really disentangle the group from the one-on-one processes easily or precisely. Um, But in an early study, we actually conducted ethnographic observations of the group. So what that means is that a researcher sat in the room and took notes um, and really recorded everything that happened in the group the way an anthropologist would. And sometimes that researcher participated somewhat in group activities, other times they um, operated more like a fly on the wall. But we were really able through that work to get a really in-depth look at what happens in those groups. And I was actually one of those researchers, so I spent a good amount of time in these groups observing and participating and taking notes. Um, So with that data, we really focused our analysis on looking for the social processes that represented connection and disconnection to try to understand what differentiated groups that had more positive or more negative relationships within the group. So one thing that was interesting to us was that we started by looking at survey data that we had from um, before and after the program to look at differences between the groups in the mentees, satisf- or the group members, both mentors and mentees, satisfaction with the mentoring group, as well as the mentees' satisfaction with their one-on-one relationships, because um, we expected there might be group differences in this because groups you know, may have more positive or more negative processes going on. So what was interesting is that there were no differences between groups on satisfaction with the groups. So that was surprising, but all of the groups had pretty high levels of girls, of the mentees and the mentors being feeling satisfied with their group experiences. But there were some differences between groups in mentees' satisfaction with their one-on-one relationships. Um, So that was sort of surprising um, that there were sort of group level differences in one on one relationships, satisfaction, but not on group satisfaction. Um, So we decided that we would sort of dig into that more by looking at the observations. And by doing that, we were really able to see differences in what was happening in the groups that had the highest and lowest levels of satisfaction with their mentoring relationships. So all of the groups had fairly high levels of processes that we called connection processes. So these are things like having fun, sharing with each other, public displays of affection, um, these kinds of things that represent people having a connection with or wanting to make a connection with other people in the group. So what differentiated the groups with more positive one-on-one relationships Um, was that they had more of the processes that we would think of as sort of deeper or less superficial processes around connection. So, for example, in those higher relational satisfaction groups, there was more caretaking of each other. There was more support for each other expressed, Um, and there was trust, trust building displayed. Um, And what seemed counterintuitive at first, the groups that reported less satisfaction with their one-on-one relationships had more instances of having fun and reaching out to each other than the groups that had higher levels of satisfaction. So that sort of made us stop and think. But then we looked a lot sort of in more detail at what was really happening in those instances of having fun and reaching out. And we found that fun really looked different in the low satisfaction groups. So in those groups, the fun often occurred along with what we termed different kinds of disconnection. So for example, you know, a couple of mentees might be having fun together, but it was happening as a sideline to the group activity. and was sort of a distraction to the group overall. So it wasn't an overall positive process for the group, even though it may have been something positive for those individual girls. Similarly, we found that reaching out, which was instances of group members making an effort to connect with one another, um, so somebody kind of purposefully reaching out to another member of the group to connect with them, um, we saw as a positive thing in general, right? We want to see that. But it happened to occur in more negative ways in those groups with lower relational satisfaction. So in those groups, reaching out was always happening alongside rejection. So what that meant is that reaching out to one person was actually a means of rejecting someone else in the group. So for example, a mentee might have been observed trying to connect with another mentor in the group, but in doing so, she was sort of snubbing her own mentor. And so I think that what this points to is the complexity of groups and the importance of having good group facilitators who can help monitor and support positive relational processes and sort of keep those negative processes in check. Because it certainly can be positive for a mentee to reach out to a mentor other than her own, but you don't necessarily want it to happen as a way to reject someone else. Um, This was really further highlighted when we looked at the negative processes that were associated with disconnection. So there were some differences that you would expect, such as disengagement from the group and rejection being more prevalent in the groups with lower relational satisfaction. But disconnection and conflict did occur at some level in all groups. But the groups where girls were more satisfied with their one-on-one relationships at the end of the year, the facilitators and mentors tended to be more adept at responding frequently and proactively to those processes. And interestingly, the groups with higher relational satisfaction and deeper levels of positive social processes tended to have more mentors who had prior experience with YWLP, suggesting that, in fact, the skill levels of mentors um, probably impacts the group processes.
0: Well, thank you, Nat. That sounds very, you know, complicated and complex. And I I appreciate the fact that you looked at kind of... Why those things were happening, because as you noted, in some cases there there were behaviors that might on paper seem like positive behaviors, having fun, reaching out. But, you know, because you were observing and really kind of getting in the weeds of what was happening, they were actually negative, right? And so uh, that's fascinating to to, you know, just think about. Being able to observe that you pick up on those nuances. Um, and speaking of nuances, I want to make sure I understand and our audience understands a little bit about. And you touched on this a little bit, but kind of the interplay between the one-on-one experience for each girl and their mentor, and how that influenced their group satisfaction. Because it sounds like that satisfaction was also influenced by how the group, you know, got along with each each member. But let's talk about you know that the one-on-one experience and how that impacted overall kind of feelings of being part of this program. If I get stuck with a one-on-one mentor, I don't like, um, does that mean that I have a harder time with the group as a whole? Does that kind of color my perceptions of this whole programmatic experience? Does it strengthen my relationship with the group? Because I'd rather engage with the other girls and other mentors rather than my mentor, um, so I, I think for these blended programs, and I think in our national survey, we found a good, you know, 15% of programs. So they are kind of a blended one-on-one group thing like this. You know, what have you learned about the interaction between that one-on-one relationship and and the group experience?
1: Yeah, that's a great question, Mike. So, you know, the fact that the social processes that we were observing were unfolding in the groups over the course of the academic year, right? We were observing them in real time as they happened. Um, and that relational satisfaction me- measure that we then used to divide the groups into high and low satisfaction groups um, was taken at the end of the year, right? So the processes we saw happening were occurring before the girls had reported on their relational satisfaction, um, which suggests to us that what happened in the group did influence the one-on-one relationships. At the same time, there were not differences in the girls' satisfaction with the group at the end of the year. So they were distinguishing those, right? Right. Um, and girls could talk about having positive group experiences, even when they felt less satisfied with their one-on-one relationships. Um, but it does appear that in groups where there are more negative processes happening, girls at the end of the year report less satisfaction with their relationships. And, and we don't know whether there's negative processes or a result of ongoing satisfaction with the one-on-one relationships that comes out in the group. But I suspect that that's the case based on having observed these groups. Um, At the same time, the group really can be protective for girls who have a less positive one-on-one experience, um, which is sort of what's suggested by the fact that they can still rate their group experience as positive, right? So I think, you know, as you know, and as your listeners, I'm sure know, relational maintenance is really one of the big challenge areas for many mentoring programs, right? So the retention of these relationships over time um, is important. It can be difficult. And YWLP has a very high retention rate, and I think it's typically in the 90s um, in terms of the, the percentage of mentoring relationships that last for the entire length of the program, which is an academic year. So we suspect that the group does serve as a kind of glue that can keep girls and mentors involved who may otherwise have dropped out if they're struggling in their relationships. Um, and there are multiple reasons this might be the case. So girls may be enjoying interactions with their peers in the groups, or they may connect with a different mentor in the group. And mentors also may feel more obligation to the group as a whole and may be able to also get more support and role modeling from their fellow mentors in the group. Um, we've actually been examining a similar question using interviews with mentors and mentees that were done at the end of the program um, so this work has been led by Aisha Griffith, a researcher now at University of Illinois, Chicago, who studies the development of trust in youth relationships with non-parental adults. Um, and we've been really examining the role of the group in the development of the one-on-one relationships. And it seems that the group can be supportive in the development of that one-on-one relationship by providing a context for the pair, for the mentor and the mentee to learn more about each other and build trust in a way that sort of can overcome discomfort that can be associated for some people with trying to get to know a stranger in a one-on-one situation. So particularly for girls who may be less forthcoming or more shy, the group can actually provide a safer context. The mentors also talk about being able to watch their mentee interact with her peers as being an important way for learning more about her. And talk about watching other mentoring relationships and talking to other mentors as a way to get support for their own relationships.
0: Thanks, Nancy. That's fascinating stuff. And I, I feel like, you know, these blended programs, you know, perhaps give those one-on-one mentors a, a bit of a safety net, right? The matches taking place in this environment where there's lots of other support available. And it's not all about just the two of them, you know, alone on a walk somewhere talking about <laughs> problems. And, you know, it feels like a very high pressure way of of offering support to a young person. And as you noted, I think mentors that, you know, may need to build their own skills can see other mentors role modeling that behavior around them. So I think there's a lot of a lot of benefits from from that type of model.
1: We've heard mentors um, actually describe um, sort of using techniques that they've seen other mentors use in moments when they're sort of troubleshooting in their own relationships. So I absolutely think that happens. Yeah.
0: Thanks, Nancy. So based on these findings around group dynamics, which, you know, sound a little complicated and there's a lot going on there that programs need to kind of be aware of and keep their eye on. What advice would you have for practitioners working in a, a group or a blended one-on-one group program like this? Are there things that you've seen in your research that really make these groups and these these dyads you know sing so to speak?
1: Yeah. Um, so I I think first, and this is probably not dissimilar from most mentoring programs, but I think it's it's a little more particular here. Um, strong training and support for mentors. So um, I think, and that also goes for having strong. And well-trained group facilitators, right? So, you know, we know that training and support is important in all mentoring programs, but in this case, there's a particular kind of training and support that really goes beyond just um, the, me- the typical training and mentoring, but also has to do with how to navigate the group setting. And so I think, you know, Providing mentors and facilitators opportunities to, for example, role play potential difficult situations that could arise in the group. Um, and also, I think, to norm negative or difficult processes that may occur in the group and actually provide suggestions and training for how to handle them so that facilitators and mentors, when they're in a group and you know there is some conflict, don't sort of freeze up but see that as a normal part. Of, of what happens in the development of a group and instead think about how to best proactively address it. I also think one unique thing about YWLP is that um, the groups themselves, in terms of the mentees, are heterogeneous. So girls are referred to the program for a variety of different kinds of issues. So they may be struggling with academics, or they may be struggling socially, or they may be struggling behaviorally. But because um, the schools nominate girls for the program who are are very different from each other, the mentoring groups are not sort of bound by specific peer groups. So that really helps diffuse the potential for the kind of um, contagion that has the the possibility of occurring in some um, youth or adolescent groups, as well as the potential for kind of clicks and negative peer dynamics to occur. Um, So, in fact, one outcome that we consistently hear from mentors and mentees in the program is that they really want to learn to connect across differences and learn to sort of respect people and learn they can be friends with people who are different from themselves. So I think thinking about the makeup of the group and the heterogeneity of it is important.
0: Oh, that is that's great advice. My daughter was in a number of summer camps this year in which I think there was definitely some negative group <laughs> dynamics and some some clicks, but you know it's a summer camp, so you're throwing all kinds of different young people together in a a group for a week, and sometimes it goes well and sometimes it doesn't. I want to ask you a quick follow up here about the the facilitator role in the program and I've heard group mentoring programs struggle with this a little bit around. You know, should the, the mentors be like running the activities or should we have a staff member in that role? And I know it sounds like for the most part in this program, uh, the facilitators are often not mentors. They're a staff person or somebody else. Do you think that's kind of a, a, a wise practice or, or yeah. do you think?
1: So that's a great question. Actually, in some cases, the facilitators also have a mentee. Um, in some t- And that's in part determined by the, um, that's, sorry, we just had a very loud burst of lightning here that threw me off my game. Um, in some cases, facilitators also serve as mentors and are assigned an individual mentee. um, And that is primarily determined by the needs of the program. So, right, how many mentors they've recruited and how many mentees have signed up for the program. So if the facilitator doesn't need to be a mentor, then they, then they're not. But the facilitators aren't, necessarily program staff. They are typically either graduate students in school or counseling psychology, or they are undergraduates who have previously been a mentor in YWLP. So we try to keep the facilitator able to not be a mentor if they don't have to, but they are sometimes and they are typically someone who has some kind of experience with YWLP.
0: Great. Thank you. That's that's helpful and I just know that programs kind of struggle with, you know, who should we have leading these things. So I think that's that's helpful to hear how this program has set that up. And, and hopefully you don't have more lightning here. Uh, I, I don't want you to get electrocuted on my podcast. That would be, I think, bad luck.
1: Can I add one thing? I, I just, um, in, in response to thinking about that facilitator question. Sure. One thing that I do think is important to think about is that there are dynamics that can occur if a facilitator does have a mentee, right, so that it can lead to some levels of sort of jealousy or concern, right, because either the mentee feels they're not getting enough attention, right, because the facilitator has to be attuned to the whole group. Or you know they can feel can feel like oh that mentee gets extra attention because they're the facilitators so I think it also has to be a very there have to be specific facilitator skills and knowing how to handle that dual role
0: yeah uh, once again a lot of complicated dynamics in in how you set this up and how the young people might perceive these different roles. So I want to move on and talk a little bit about another study that you did, looking this time a little bit more closely at kind of what were the mechanisms of change for for girls in the program. In that work, it seemed like you sort of tested out some of Jean Rhodes' uh, theory from her kind of conceptual framework of how mentoring impacts a young person. And you know, she's always said that you know theoretically youth kind of grow in these three ways in a relationship, and that's kind of their social-emotional development, their cognitive development, and then the development of their identity. Um, and I know you didn't look specifically at those, those buckets directly, but kind of around those things. And, and so I'm just hoping you could tell our audience a little bit about what you found in terms of the program having an impact in those broad areas. And, and did you get any insight into what was driving those changes for young people?
1: Yeah, absolutely, and and in fact, we really did use Rose's um, model as a frame for the work. So um, we, you know, although we don't end up necessarily using the same terms that she did, those those domains did guide our work, and we found some more specific things within them. So, um, so your question is actually right on. Um, And in that study, we interviewed girls at the end of the program, um, and we asked them a bunch of different questions about their experiences in the program. But one set of questions asked about how they had changed over the course of seventh grade, what they attributed those changes to, and then later we specifically asked about how they think they changed, if at all, as a result of being in YWLP. So there were three main areas that girls talked about making changes, um, relational development, self-regulation, and self-understanding. They also talked about academics, but to a much lesser extent. And then we also looked at what aspects of the program, if any, the girls talked about as really contributing to those changes. So it could have been the program curriculum, the mentoring group, or their one-on-one mentoring relationship. Um, In terms of relational development, which was really the, the, I will say, relational development, self-regulation, and self-understanding were all incredibly common and were in anywhere, I think from about three quarters to 80 something percent of of interviews is being attributed to YWLP. Um, And in terms of relational development, girls really talked about things like making new friends or getting closer to peers, learning to respect others, coming to trust other people more and and developing relational skills. So perhaps not surprisingly, um, the mentoring group was really the primary mechanism of change that they talk, talked about as really affecting their relational development. Um, the mentors and the curriculum were also mentioned, but not as frequently as the group. Um, In terms of self-regulation, girls talked about changing their attitudes and behaviors and learning to regulate their speech. So, for example, thinking before they spoke or stopping to take a breath and refraining from reacting to negative provocation from a peer or adult. Um, And interestingly, a lot of that self-regulation was, in fact, in the realm of relationships, was actually talked about in the realm of their relations with others. Um, But some girls also talked about things like goal setting. So self-regulation was fairly equally split in terms of girls um, talking about what aspects of the program influenced it across the three program components with slightly more girls talking about the curriculum and their one-on-one relationships as contributing to the change um, than they talked about the group. Um, So self-understanding included things like becoming less shy, learning to be yourself, gaining confidence, developing career goals. Um, and also taking on new social roles like seeing oneself as a leader. So girls talked equally about their mentors and the mentoring group as influencing changes in their self-understanding, with far fewer mentioning the program curriculum in relation to that aspect. Um, And while academics was mentioned by far fewer girls as an outcome associated with the program, it was interesting to see that... The girls tended to talk about mentors, their one-on-one mentoring relationship as being most influential in that area as compared to other components.
0: Oh, thank you, Nancy. I, I think it's it's interesting to think about what drives outcomes or at least the young people's perceptions of their their benefits from the program. You know, different things may be the result of, as you found here, different aspects of the program. In some cases it was the one-on-one mentor, in some cases the group and I'm kind of fascinated by these outcomes that the girls attributed to the curriculum itself to the content of what they were kind of reading and and talking about. I, I feel like we spend so much time you know the the intervention is the relationship in mentoring that we forget sometimes it matters to you know just kind of put information in front of a young person and and teach them something using you know some kind of content and just wanted to get your opinion of like how important you think it is that a group mentoring program provides, you know, some kind of curriculum that teaches and provides information. You know, even if if the mentor isn't discussing that at a deep level, how important is that in this very relationship focused work?
1: Uh, again, great question. I mean, I think in some part, some ways, it depends on the goals of the program, right? So. The curriculum seemed particularly important in scaffolding specific skills, particularly around things like self-regulation and relational skills. Um, So, for example, a number of girls talked about a skill called Gossip Guard, right, that gave them tools for how to react proactively and positively when peers begin to gossip, right? Um, Similarly, uh, the curriculum introduces uh, particular problem-solving and goal-setting skills, and the girls practice and role-play those skills, right? And the curriculum, though, can also provide less structured support. So in the the research that I mentioned earlier being led by um, Aisha Griffith that on the influence of the group on one-on-one relationships, we found that the discussion topics that were introduced by the curriculum could really give the mentors an opening to broaching sort of sensitive or difficult subjects that that they may have felt less comfortable bringing up with their mentee otherwise. So it could provide sort of an opening for relational building conversations as well.
0: Thanks, Nancy. Yeah, Curriculum may not be super important for every program. It kind of depends on what you're trying to achieve, as you noted. But uh, I like the example here that in in some cases it, you know, it made conversations easier. It gave them a starting point um, and so forth. I'd like to shift now to the most recent work you've done around this program, uh, sponsored by OJJDP, and kind of hot off the press. I'm not even sure your final report is something that's publicly available yet, so I'm. I hope I'm not scooping uh, anyone's story here, but uh, this study was, I think, less focused on kind of these processes and what's happening, you know, in the dynamic of the people in the program and and a little bit more focused on the impact of the program. So could you tell us a little bit about this this new study, the methodology? And, and it, it, my understanding is you were following up with girls who had been in the program several years ago, as well as girls that had been assigned to, I think, a control condition in some of these prior studies. Is that kind of the basic design here?
1: Yeah, that's correct. So we had conducted a study of the program that ran from 2007 to um, 2010, that w- or in which we used pre-post surveys of girls who were in YWLP um, and a control group to examine outcomes and processes of the program over three years. and It was three program years, so it was three separate cohorts of girls in the program and in the control group. Um, In fact, it was during that study that we conducted the observations of groups and interviews with girls and mentors that provided the data for the findings that we just finished discussing earlier. So in this OJJDP-funded follow-up, we actually went back to the girls from that original study five years later. So we surveyed both the girls who were in YWLP and the control group group girls, and we um, collected their school records. So for most girls, this was the beginning of their senior, or I'm sorry, not the beginning of, we did it at the end of, but for most girls, this was their senior year in high school. So this resulted in three data points for the sample. Girls had data data from the beginning of seventh grade, the end of seventh grade, and then the end of 12th grade. So with the data we have from the original study combined with the follow-up data, we're able to compare outcomes of girls in the program with girls in the control group as well as to look at whether there are differences in outcomes for different girls within the program group. We also then interviewed a subset of mentees and mentors, um, those who had reported the highest and lowest relational satisfaction at the end of the program, to try to get a sense of what their perceptions were of their experiences and what they had retained in terms of their memories of their relationships and the program five years later.
0: Well, that sounds like a great design, and I'm glad you know, that you were able to you know follow up you know with these these girls 5 years later so i'm i'm sure our audience is dying to know kind of what you found were there big differences between the girls who had gone through the program and and those who did not
1: yeah so Um, Our original design was an experimental study, uh, but as often happens in the real world, um, it did diverge at points and became a bit more quasi-experimental. So when you do an experimental study, there are two kinds of analysis that you can do, an intent-to-treat analysis and a treatment-untreated analysis. So the intent-to-treat models are more rigorous, and they preserve the integrity of the experiment, keeping the randomized design intact, right, which is a fancy way of saying that kids who were assigned to the treatment group get included in the analysis as part of the treatment group, even if they didn't wind up taking part in the program. Um, so we did not have any statistically significant intent-to-treat findings. Um, that wasn't particularly surprising, given that there was a lot of non-compliance with randomization which is researcher talk, for saying that um, it was not uncommon for girls who were assigned to the treatment group not to be in the program, not to end up going to the program, and for girls who'd been assigned to the control group to wind up in the program, right? And this was in part because we were working in the real world of school. school, it was taking place after school, there were times when girls who were assigned to the program wound up not being able to attend or take part because of their schedules. And the schools wanted to fill the program, and they sometimes um, assigned girls from the control group to the program, even though they weren't supposed to do that from the study's perspective. So, you know, the challenge of doing experiments in the real world, you work with the programs and schools to balance the needs of the research with the needs of the program and the kids in the program. So what was exciting for us is that there were some significant findings when we looked at what are what are the treatment on treated results. So when we took into account how much of the program the girls got, so whether or not they actually got YWLP. So participating in YWLP was associated with increased peer self-esteem and decreased delinquency at the end of high school. Um, We also asked girls a series of questions about whether, looking back, they felt that YWLP had helped them in a variety of areas, including things like dealing with sticky situations, talking to their parents or teachers, listening to people with views that are different from theirs, thinking about their future, making decisions about behaviors in schools, dealing with problems and things like that. And the vast majority of girls, more than eighty percent for most of the items, reported that they also believed the YWLP had helped them in those areas.
0: Well, that's great news. I mean, and I, I, you know, love the fact that you're both looking at, um, you know, kind of harder outcomes like you know delinquency there, or you know even something like you know self esteem, but also their perceptions of the program. I think very often I I don't see evaluations that are kind of you know these. We're going to look at the hard outcomes. You know, they never asked the young people, what do you think? <laughs> did you feel you got a lot out of this? And it sounds like in this case, you know, very high percentages of them were looking back and, and feeling like that had changed, you know, a bit of the trajectory of who they are. Um, I'm also happy that you talked about kind of the difference between intent to treat and treatment of treated. Uh, that came up in another podcast we did with David Dubois and Carla Herrera, once again, kind of asking people to, you know, look back on an experience several years earlier and, and same thing, they had all this contamination between, you know, who actually got a mentor and you know a lot of people that were assigned to get a mentor that never got one and people that weren't supposed to get a mentor that subsequently did get one. And, and so I appreciate you kind of bringing that up, it, you know, it's a good note for our audience that these types of things really make a difference when you're trying to say, whether a program had an impact or not, it's like, well, did they actually get the service they were they were supposed to get? That seems like that would be meaningful um, in trying to decide if something's effective or not. I also wanted to ask, so, I mean, thank you for kind of summarizing, you know, the the big finding here, I think, which is, you know, decreased delinquency, um, which I think matters a lot to school personnel, policymakers, but you also look quite a bit at what was driving those differences in terms of their experience in the program and, and these outcomes, uh, can you talk a little bit about what might have been moderating or or perhaps mediating those those changes?
1: So we mainly used the interviews, and again, these were interviews with girls and mentors from a subset of girls and mentors from the who had the highest and lowest relational satisfaction five years previously at the end of the program. So we used these interviews with them five years later to look at. What about their relationships they were called? And this is, you know, there's very little longitudinal work on mentoring. And so we thought it would be interesting to see how much girls were were called about these relationships later in their lives. So we haven't fully analyzed the data. There's a lot more we can do with it. But we did initial analysis using the developmental relationships framework that some of your audience members may be familiar with. It was developed by the Search Institute. And so we used those domains to look at and examine our data. We found that expressing care was the most prevalent domain talked about by girls. I and mean, then 93% of the mentees talked about that in relationship to, to their mentors. Specifically, the girls talked about how their mentors invested in them, were dependable, were warm, and showed interest in them. Um, Providing support was the second most common domain that they mentioned, which was also talked about by 93% of the girls, but with somewhat fewer examples provided by each girl. Um, Guiding and modeling were talked about by all or nearly all of the girls who talked about their mentors providing support. And they also talked some about advocating and encouraging. So not surprisingly, the absence of support from their mentor was mentioned more frequently by girls in lower satisfaction relationships than girls in higher satisfaction relationships. Um, about 70% of the girls also talked about their mentors challenging their growth. And mentors did this by inspiring girls, holding them to high expectations, and helping them stretch. Um, one thing that was interesting when we think about what may differentiate high and low satisfaction relationships, which may also drive outcomes, you know, is that girls in higher satisfaction relationships were more likely to talk about their mentors challenging their growth than girls in lower satisfaction relationships. Sharing power and expanding possibilities were two other areas that were also talked about by slightly more or less than half of the girls respectively, um, although fewer examples of these were provided by girls who talked about them. Um, And sharing power also appeared to occur more frequently in higher satisfaction relationships. So another interesting finding in that regard emerged from a novel method that we used, um, relational graphs. So we asked girls and mentors to physically plot their feelings about their relationships on a graph during their interviews. Um, And we found that dips in their perceptions of their relationship were somewhat normative, um, so that... It was somewhat normative for there to be a sort of dip in their satisfaction with the relationship at some point over the course of that that mentoring relationship. So, what differentiated high from low satisfaction relationships wasn't whether or not there was a period of discord or conflict or just you know sort of negative feelings, but whether that relationship rebounded from that dip. And you know, in some ways, that's similar to what we found about the groups, right? High satisfaction groups didn't mean they didn't have any disconnection or conflict, but it meant they were able to rebound from them. So something very similar here in the one-on-one relationships. We also looked at how mentors and mentees talked about mutuality in their relationships. So we've talked about the Rhodes model and um, mutuality is one of the key processes that that is identified in, in her model of mentoring. But it hasn't necessarily been empirically unpacked in terms of what it really looks like in relationships. So in a paper that was led by Ashley Lester, we found that mutuality is experienced by mentors and mentees as a combination of two dimensions, shared relational excitement and experiential empathy. And in this case, shared relational excitement um, is felt when there's genuine desire by both the mentor and mentee to invest in the relationship. And experiential empathy is the process through which mentors connect with, advise, and normalize the experiences of their mentees by sharing their own relevant experiences. And then finally, we've been looking at whether there may be differences in what happens in relationships that might help predict outcomes five years later. So to do this, we particularly used the character subscale of the measure of positive youth development that we gave to girls um, at the longitudinal follow-up five years after the program at the end of 12th grade. We then selected those girls who had high or low character scores and went back to their mentors' interviews from the end of YWLP at the end of seventh grade. Those interviews were coded to look for relational processes that were mentioned by girls and mentors. So, sorry, I said we went to the mentors interviews. We actually went back to both the girls and the mentors interviews from five years before and looked at how they described their mentoring relationships. So girls who were high on character, the character aspect of positive youth development five years after the program, described their mentors as working with them as they navigated relationships in real time intentionally scaffolding them to develop skills around relational problem solving. Girls who had lower character scale scores um, in positive youth development five years later describe mentors who provided space to talk about and validate issues. Um, And in the dyads where the girls five years later had higher levels um, or higher scores on this character subscale of PYD the girls talked about trust around their mentees' needs, and whereas the girls in the lower, um, with lower levels of character on the PYD scale, five years later tended to speak more about encouragement um, from their mentors, and then finally, pairs in which girls uh, later scored higher in character tended to use the analogy, of, use use the term sister in talking about each other, while the the other pairs tended to use the word friend when talking about each other. So some interesting differences
0: there. Yeah, that's, it's kind of fascinating. And I think it's, you know, something mentors should keep in mind that, you know, one mentor could be hearing the same set of problems from their mentee and having very similar discussions, but in how they frame that, and how they encourage their mentee to respond to that the ones who, you know, did a little bit more problem solving with the girls and kind of, it almost sounds like they pushed them a little bit to find solutions around some of that, or as opposed to, well, I'm just going to be a, you know, someone you can kind of vent to, and we don't really ever solve that. Right. And that seems more like a friend, a sister might be someone who, well, I'm going to teach you how to deal with that problem. Right. And so, the ripple effect of that five years later um, and how these young girls, you know, conceptualize themselves and their relations with others. I just find that to be fascinating. And it's, you know, you mentioned the developmental relationship scale. One of my favorite pieces of that is that they include challenge growth, right? Because I think you do see these mentoring relationships where we're just kind of hanging out. We're friends. We like each other. We have fun together, but I'm not really, pressing you in any way to, to grow and change and learn. So um, it's interesting to see little pieces of that in your study here. So lastly, I want to end with, you know, in your report, you talk about some very practical things that practitioners can think about um, in improving their group programs based on, you know, what these girls said worked and didn't work in, in their mind. Would you mind sharing just a few of those with our audience?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So as you know, you know, in addition to obviously drawing our own conclusions about what we think might be best practices based on our findings, um, we directly ask girls and mentors during interviews, you know, what kind of changes they thought could improve the program, many of which I think are applicable to a lot of mentoring programs, not just YWLP. So two themes emerged specifically in mentees' reflections. Um, So the first was that although uh, mentees generally reported that the activities were fun, some recommended that more time should be spent with their mentor during one-on-one time, right? So they actually wanted a little more one-on-one time from the program. Um, Second, some mentees recommended that YWLP continue to high school. So they actually wanted to be able to take the program with them as they transitioned out of middle school. And then three major themes emerged from the mentors' responses. So the first was additional social support for mentors, um, which is actually interesting because I think that is something that is already somewhat higher in, in YWLP than probably in a lot of programs just because of the nature of the class and the training. Um, but it sounds like they, they still could use more help addressing the diverse needs of mentees. So I think this is reflective of work, you know, that Renee Spencer and others have done on on the why relationships end, right? And sort of feeling challenged by the needs of of youth. Um, And then more support in structuring activities, which is I think speaks to the nature of the curriculum, right, which has very specific activities that they need to implement and wanting a little more support in that. But in addition, both the mentors and mentees talked about two additional areas, that they thought improvements could help. Um, So these two were raised by both the girls and their mentors. And the first was additional support and guidance about ending the relationship, something that Renee Spencer, again, has been, I know, working on, um, and improved processes for matching of mentors and mentees. Um, I also think that, as I mentioned before, really thinking about the training and support of mentors and particularly for group programs, providing some specific training on group facilitation skills is key. And I also think that, as I noted earlier, considering the makeup of groups within group programs is critical. I would also encourage programs to use a curriculum where appropriate to scaffold mentees learning and provide structure for mentors and running groups, especially at the beginning of the program, um, and I know that uh, Mike Lyons and Sam McQuillan has have also been doing work on thinking about providing mentors with specific support for, for example, um, goals help helping mentees goal set, right? So really thinking about how, we you can use different curriculums to help mentors engage with their mentees, and structured group activities could also potentially be tapered, right? So with more time given to the one-on-one relationship as the program progresses, and the one-on-one relationships themselves gain in strength.
0: Thanks, Nancy, and and great advice for programs there. And um, and you're right about the work that Sam and and Mike Lyons are doing around i believe that's the motivational interviewing stuff that uh, sam's been doing in his program and and really needing to kind of almost do just in time training for mentors so that they kind of have the right skill at the at, you know on the tip of their tongue in the right moment as things come up so thank you for kind of running through all of that and describing kind of what you've learned about this one program over three studies. I think it's fascinating that you've in each of these you've looked at different slices of of the program um, and just really appreciate you kind of walking our audience through all that. And thank you for this conversation. This has been a lot of fun. I've enjoyed learning about the program. Um and I hope our audience has enjoyed kind of hearing your insight and and particularly around group mentoring, right? I feel like we talk a lot about the one-on-one aspect of of mentoring, so it's good for a change, I think, to talk about groups and group dynamics. So thank you, Nancy. And just for our audience, please remember we have several more episodes of this series to release uh, throughout the rest of 2018, so keep an eye on the NMRC website for new recordings. And remember, if you want to make some improvements in your program or you need help with a challenge that uh, your young people are facing that you'd like to address, the NMRC offers free technical assistance and consultation nationwide. All you need to do is request it through the website, nationalmentoringresourcecenter.org, and we will connect you to our experts around the country and get your program the help that you need. So on behalf of OJJDP and the National Mentoring Resource Center, Uh, Thanks again, Nancy, for joining us. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And remember, the research may seem definitive sometimes, but I think we truly decide what's meaningful as a field through dialogue just like this and by keeping open hearts and minds. So we'll see you next time on Reflections on Research. Thank you.